the deep settled confidence that the word is true. And when he said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, whether I feel it or not, I know he's there. And then there are those God moments where, boom, you realize he was there when you needed him. That voice has been on radio for 50 years. Dr. Harold Sala, our guest today on First Person. Welcome, everybody. I'm Wayne Shepherd. I'm very pleased today to introduce you to Dr. Sala, a man I've known for many years and a man who's been pointing people to God through radio, speaking, and books for the past 50 years all over the world. This First Person program comes to you each week at this time, telling you the stories of people's lives, lives dedicated to following God in all His ways. We are online at firstpersoninterview.com, where you can listen to any past program, check the schedule to see what's coming up in the weeks ahead, and find out more about today's guest. All that and more at firstpersoninterview.com. And then you can contact us easily with your thoughts on these conversations by visiting our Facebook page, facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Dr. Harold Sala's warm, personal style of sharing insight and wisdom from God's Word has endeared him to listeners. I was recently in the Philippines and saw some of the results of his ministry firsthand. So, on the occasion of his 50th anniversary of broadcasting this month, I called to congratulate him. Well, thank you. Uh, we aired the first program on the 2nd of September, 1963. We had a feeling that we could use a five-minute program to impact the lives of people where we work that it would be long enough to be effective, short enough to be heard at one sitting. And here we are almost 50 years downstream, and we're still doing the same thing. But we have learned over the years it is effective. It is the five minutes, day after day after day. What prompted you to want to uh, do a radio program, of all things? In 1962, my wife and I were on vacation in the Colorado Rockies. I had spent three years on the staff of one of the ten largest churches in the U.S., and of course I was young. During that three-year period, I had rubbed shoulders with some of the leading evangelicals of the day, and their lives impacted me. So Darlene and I are praying, God, how do you want us to spend our lives so that we can impact the greatest number of people in a lifetime? We heard no voices, we saw no hands right on the wall, but we said, we've heard from God, and the message is, use the media, but radio in particular. Hmm. Now, I had no radio experience, but I also realized that four of the five largest nations in the world had closed their doors to traditional missions. Number one, China. Number two, India. Number three, the former Soviet Union. Number five was Indonesia. And I felt that by using radio, we could impact the lives of those people. So, Darlene and I resigned, we established guidelines, took a love offering of $720, went down on Skid Row, and we bought an old Ampex 350, (laughs) about the size of a washing machine today. (laughs) And sitting on a shipping crate in a guest house, a missionary guest house in Los Angeles, we produced the first five-minute program. (laughs) We had no assurance that anybody would even carry the thing. (laughs) I went to Oval Wiley who was the manager of KFSG Radio. I explained the concept. He said, yeah, I like the idea. We'll take your program. And we added one station on the average of every two and a half weeks for the next two years, and that's how we got started. (laughs) Well, guidelines today, and now we talk about uh, worldly Christians. You are not a worldly Christian. You are a world Christian because your voice and guidelines is literally heard all over the world. Just give me a sketch of uh, what the ministry is like today. Well, I'd I'd be glad to. 
we say today that we really have three areas of ministry. All of it has grown out of our five-minute commentary. The first is what we call reaching, the second is teaching, and the third is touching. The reaching is really evangelistic. Uh, it is books and publications. I'm just finishing my 51st book. We have translated them into many languages. It is also the Internet and the media. Now we have a new outreach with social media, and that is Facebook and all of the related technologies that go along with it. We had 2.5 million hits on our Internet site this last year, and now we're beginning to produce uh, iBooks and making them available to different people around the world. The second part is what we call teaching, and that's what we do a lot of overseas. We do some of that in the United States, but the greatest part of our ministry is really around the world. Last year, we were in 15 countries. This year, fewer countries, but for longer periods of time. Uh, we have spent a week in Thailand, a week in Cambodia, a week in Myanmar, where I got deported, oh. and then uh, four weeks in the Philippines. So we try to bring together pastors and teach and train them grounding them in principles, especially relating to families and their needs, so they in turn can impact the lives of other people. We do a lot of family conferences, and we have keyed off the needs of families because this is a universal need around the world. And the third part is what we call touching, and that's humanitarian. And that is where we stumble over a need, and we say, hey, we can't walk away from this. Hmm. And that includes orphanages, it includes feeding programs for children who are on the street, hospital ministry in Kenya, a nursing school there, a birthing center in the Philippines. And so out of this have come those three areas of ministry. Sometimes when people say, what is guidelines? And I try to explain it a little bit liking, like nailing jello to the wall, because <laughs> there are a lot of diverse ministry streams. But the main part has been the radio that has impacted the lives of so many people. I've got so many things I want to talk to you about today. i got to go back to that statement you threw out about being deported from Myanmar. What happened? Well, <laughs> kind of interesting. Um, their website in Washington, D.C. says that as of a certain date, like six months ago, you could go ahead and obtain your visitor visa upon arrival. So based with the application and what we needed and passport pictures and so forth, we arrive, we go over to the line where it says visitor visas issued here. And we present the papers, they push it back under the window and say, no, you will have to leave the country immediately. You cannot stay. You have to get your visa out of the country. <laughs> so I reach into my briefcase and I say, this is on your website in Washington, D.C. It says we may now obtain our visitor's visa here. May I speak with your supervisor? Well, I went through about three different echelons, and finally this guy shows up who looked like he might have been trained by Pol Pot, I'm not sure. <laughs> and he was very convincing. And remembering Su Kai and the years that she had been mm -hmm. in prison, we right. decided we better cooperate. So they take us right back to the plane that we got off of, put us back on the plane, fly us out of the country three days later, and uh, with a lot of hassle, we got back and accomplished what we needed to do there. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and it's even more amazing to know that God is at work in, in closed countries where it is difficult to get in and, and do ministry. Still, God's Spirit is there and things are happening, aren't they? Oh, ab absolutely. I went into China for the first time in 1979, and I was among the first 10,000 visitors to be able to go into China. Over the years, God has given us a good ministry in this country. 
We have a board in Asia, and about 15 years ago, we made the decision that we would work within the confines of the three self-churches, because we could impact the lives of more people. Today, we have an open door in many parts of China, and this is working within the system. But we thank God, because in China, here you have so many people. We have 7 billion people in the world, about 1.4 billion of them are in China, and... uh, You have a younger generation who's hungry to get to the truth. And when we present the truth to them, then they respond to it in a beautiful way. Talk more about that. I I admire how innovative you are and using all the means you can to reach people and teach the Word. But talk about that hunger that you see, particularly in other cultures. I, I really will, and I would like that. I believe within the heart of every person is a desire to know Is there a God? Does this God care about me? And how can I have a relationship with him? In communist countries, people have been told there is no God, and subsequently religion is an opiate of the people. It is a psychological thing, but people have not bought that. And even though a generation, say the previous generation, was restricted, This, of course, was true of the former Soviet Union. It has been true of China. It is true of some of the Islamic countries today. There is still a longing in the hearts of the people. Is there a God who loves me, who cares about me? And when you can communicate the fact that there is a God, He is a loving God, and He cares about you, and furthermore, you can know that your your sins are forgiven, and you can have a relationship with Him. They are quick to respond. In China today, going back to where I started a minute ago, you have three basic groups of people. You have the individuals in the unregistered churches, and there are a lot of people there, and the older people still don't trust the government, so they prefer to go to a house church. We used to refer to them as the underground church. They're not underground. They're simply not registered with the three self-patriotic churches. The second group would be, of course, those who are in the three self-churches. And I am often asked, can you trust those pastors? I say, hey, it is just like the United States or Europe or anywhere else. You have individuals who are overtly evangelicals, I mean, and then you have some that do not share that same degree of commitment and fervency. But you have masses of people there, and when you work within the system, especially ministering to families, we have been blessed by having an open door and an outreach. We have 10 books that are in Chinese now, and uh, we have been able to distribute many of them through the three self-churches. Then the third group is one that I find very exciting. They're the business and professionals, the individuals who, frankly, don't want the formality of a formal service, and neither do they want to be identified with house churches. And they are the ones who will meet in coffee shops, they will meet in restaurants, they will meet in neutral places, auditoriums somewhere, and they interact and share their faith, and it's a vibrant sort of thing. Uh, in some cases, they are identified with the government. In some cases, they have they are card they're communists. But the government knows that Christians have integrity. They are honest. They are trustworthy, and they work hard. And subsequently, as long as it doesn't get too much out of hand, the government simply accepts that fact that they're there. So things have changed radically in China. 
And we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Harold Sala on today's edition of First Person coming up in just a moment. Next time, the story of pastor and international broadcaster, Dr. Michael Youssef. And I would cry to the Lord, and I said, Lord, you know, when I promised you that I would go anywhere, do anything. And I meant it then, and I mean it now in my 60s. (laughs) And once I know this is where the Lord is guiding, I will go, and whatever the cost. Dr. Michael Youssef's story teaches us to trust and obey. Learn the details next week here on First Person. My guest today here on First Person is Dr. Harold Sala of Guidelines, and he has a new book out that we'll talk about later, but I want to talk about your life and, and, and how you came to faith in the first place, Harold, because God is using you all over the world, and it's always interesting to me to see how God has prepared a heart like yours to serve. So t- t- where did this all start for you? As far back as I can remember, our family went to church, but we were not believers. In the 40s, it was a good thing to go to church. You met other business people. It was, uh, you know, the thing that was to be done. But the churches were not overtly evangelical. At the age of 12, my parents visited a church for the first time, and I heard the gospel. And on that Sunday morning, my brother, my sister, and I all responded. We went forward at an invitation, and we found Christ. And how old were you? Three days. I was 12 years old. Okay. It was the last Sunday of January in 1949, and it was a turning point in our entire family. Uh, my mom and dad then began to follow the Lord, even though they had grown up in the church when they were you know, young people, there was no relationship with Christ. And that was the very beginning. As a teenager, I uh, really made a commitment to Christ. Uh, two or three years later, I was at a youth camp. And I came home, and I told my mom that I felt God had called me to preach. I remember she cried. And <laughs> oh, Wait, uh, why did she cry? <laughs> I, I have no idea. I think her heart was touched, and I think she was very pleased. <laughs> okay. Now, on my uh, dad's side of the family, there had been preachers. My grandfather was a Baptist preacher. On uh, my mother's side of the family, there were also uh, circuit-riding Methodist preachers, all kinds of them. But it changed the direction of my life. Wayne, I have to tell you, I never looked back. I would go into hospitals, I would go into jails when I could, and simply share my faith. And uh, I, I knew what God wanted me to do, and that was to proclaim the Word. I felt, as a teenager, that God wanted me to be an evangelist. Well, we have this certain picture of an evangelist, but I really think that through the media and through radio, I have lived out that calling in inviting people to come to a relationship with Christ. When did Darlene come into the picture for you, your lovely wife? Oh, interesting. When she went away to college, her father told her, never turn down an opportunity to play the piano, because that's how you may meet your husband. (laughs) That was how he met his wife. So when I was in school, uh, I walked into a Sunday morning Bible study that I was to teach, and I saw a new piano player, and Wayne, there was something struck me. It was not what I saw on the outside. It was the gentle spirit and the Christ-likeness that I saw in her heart. Hmm. Now, until I met Darlene, I had never dated a girl more than once because I wasn't really interested in that sort of thing. <laughs> but I said, I've got to get to know her. 
And three years later, we became engaged, and then we have been married now for 52 years, and she is the greatest thing that's happened to me this side of heaven. Well, I just might agree with you on that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Take a a particular episode in your life, if you would, Harold, and uh, whether it was a difficult period or just a period of incredible growth, but just describe one of those moments, one of those snapshots of your life. I wish I had a couple hours because I'd I'd like to tell you. But you can fish or cut bait, but you can't fish or cut bait at the same time. In other words, you can do one thing very well. You can't do a half a dozen things. And I spent three years on the staff of Calvary Temple in Denver as I began my ministry. And the failure of the senior pastor there was that he spread himself so thin, he just didn't do what he was supposed to be doing well. After I took my Ph.D. in biblical text, we came to the crossroads and I said, okay, should I be involved in the media full-time, or does God have something else in store for me? I felt that we were not ready to jump into it full-time, so I accepted the pastorate of a church in Redondo Beach, California. And in the seven years that we were there, we built a new facility, we doubled in attendance in the first 12 months we were in the new building, tripled in the next 15 months, and I came to the crossroads. I said, okay, is the church going to be the dog and the uh, radio be the tail of the dog, or does God want me there full-time? Darlene and I went down to the beach. We sat there and poured out our hearts. God, what do you want us to do? Now, I'm a fairly aggressive kind of person, kind of type A personality, and there were times when I beat on a door and it opened, and then I said, did I do this or was this God? And so we said, Lord, make it so clear that we cannot miss it. Within two weeks, Dr. Robert Bowman, who was the founder of the Far East Broadcasting Company, came to me and said, Harold, would you and Darlene consider going to the Philippines and be kind of a chaplain to our staff there and then also do programming? And when he did, we said, this is what God wants. So with very mixed feelings in our heart, we resigned from the church And in 1974, we moved to the Philippines, though I was never part of FEBC. I now serve on the American board. But we established a base there, and from there you could reach 60% of the world by radio. That opened the door for our international ministry. It also opened the door for our printing. So subsequently, the two years that we spent there and then had to return to the U.S. were very productive and fruitful in establishing an impact or a presence in Southeast Asia. It's very interesting to hear you describe uh, yourself as that type A person that sometimes you kind of run ahead of the Lord a little bit and beat the door down for him, you know, open the door yourself. But, uh, that's, a, that's a difficult call sometimes, isn't it? But I think as you wait on the Lord, he will make it very plain and very clear. And then, of course, other people will confirm the fact, yes, this makes sense. I think that is what God wants. And uh, we have seen that happen I was immediately prior going to Asia. I was in Quito, Ecuador with HEJB, and I encountered a man who was blind. And it was an experience that I think helped to prepare me uh, for ministry in Asia where there is a lot of poverty, especially in different parts of Asia. And when I saw this guy who was begging, and I turned to Tom Fulgham, who was radio director then, and said, is that guy for real or is that a ripoff? And he said, if the locals give to him, it's a real need. If only the tourists give to him, maybe not really valid. 
And an old woman came along, gave him a half of a piece of loaf of bread. He began to stuff it in his mouth. And I heard from God, no audible voice, but it was like God saying, look at him. You think you're better than he is, don't you? I want you to know I love him just as much as I love you. So over the years, we've had a heart for the people who are downcast, the people who are hungry, who are on the street, the people who are overwhelmed with poverty. They're important to God, too. He has no throwaway children. Everybody has equal importance in the sight of God. You've been a disciple of Jesus Christ for many years. Talk to me about Jesus. What does Jesus mean to you? Oh, Wayne, how hard it is to compress it in just a few words. This last year, I finished writing a book on healing, and it brought a new encounter with Jesus. I have studied the Word in my doctoral program. I was responsible for content for the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament text and interpretation. But I must tell you, I saw Jesus in a new and a compassionate light, one that has deeply touched me. I choke up when I start talking about this, because he loves each of us. And over the years, I guess I'm just a little different kind of a person. I have never been overwhelmed with doubt. I knew that God was there. I knew that he was leading. And so I take it by faith. God's word is tremendously important. My favorite hymn is by Lydia Edmonds. My heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God, salvation through my Savior's name, salvation through his blood. So I take it as face value. The most important book I've ever written is why you can have confidence in the Bible. John Piper has written a book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, and you, uh, you've described that moment when uh, Jesus became less of an intellectual thought and more of a person to you. That's, what, that's the point we need to come to, isn't it? It is not simply a mystical sort of thing. It is the deep, settled realization that he is there. You don't have to be the constant, oh, I don't feel this today sort of thing. It is the knowledge that he is there. In a very real sense, it's like the love of my wife. I may be halfway around the world. I never doubt her love. I, it isn't, well, I have to feel her hand on my hand to know that she's there. The deep, settled confidence that the word is true. And when he said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, whether I feel it or not, I know he's there. And then there are those God moments where, boom, you, you realize he spared your life. He, he was there when you needed him. It's always amazing to me to look back over a person's long-term obedience and faithfulness and learn from their example. I'm sure Harold Saylor would be the first to tell you that it wasn't always the easiest course to follow, but serving God is always the best course to take. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Harold Sala and his Guidelines Ministry, visit our website for links and additional information. We're online at firstpersoninterview.com. And you can follow the links, listen to any part of today's conversation you may have missed, or check the schedule of upcoming guests and topics. The audio archive is also full of previous programs in this series. Again, go to firstpersoninterview.com. And you can communicate with us via our Facebook page, facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Next time, our guest will be Dr. Michael Youssef of Leading the Way Radio and Television and Rector of the Church of the Apostles in Atlanta. Born in Egypt to Christian parents, Dr. Youssef has a dramatic story of God directing his steps. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. We'll see you next week on First Person. First Person.